Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio. My name is Andres. In this episode, we turn to questions of political repression, movement defense, and solidarity with political prisoners. Questions which have been accentuated in the wake of massive legal attacks visited upon protesters who participated in the J20 demonstration in Washington, D.C. on the day of Donald Trump's presidential inauguration. With most of over 230 protesters who were arrested in D.C. facing felony charges and potentially up to 75 years in prison, the J-20 resistance starkly illustrates the perils of escalating state repression, the urgent need for strategic movement defense, and the importance of standing in solidarity with those who put themselves at risk for the sake of collective struggle. We speak first with writer, activist, and revolutionary Ashanti Alston, a former Black Panther and member of the Black Liberation Army, who spent 14 years incarcerated due to his activity in the revolutionary movement. He discusses the dynamics of state repression and its relationship to the carceral state, the uses and pitfalls of distinguishing between political and social prisoners, and why defending political prisoners is essential to the struggle for abolition. We also speak with Jude Ortiz from the Tilted Scales Collective about their recently published book, A Tilted Guide to Being a Defendant on the importance of situating legal defense campaigns within a movement-centered strategy for liberation. Finally, we speak with Peyton, a current J-20 defendant, about his experience of the J-20 repression and this fall's courtroom struggles. But first, here's Kaysayed with some news you may have missed. On October 16th, Ramsey Orta, the man who filmed the police killing of Eric Garner, made a statement highlighting the retaliation and abuse he has experienced at the hands of corrections officers in Franklin Correctional Facility in New York State. In a letter his lawyer shared with the New York Daily News, Orta wrote that he fears for his life and cannot take any more of the ongoing abuse. The arrest of Orta was itself an act of retaliation by the NYPD, a brutal institution that was exposed by Orta's video of the murder of Eric Garner, who was killed by cops for being black while selling cigarettes on the street. Orta was physically abused by five to seven corrections officers while he was being moved to solitary confinement. On October 26th, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel obtained state documents that shed light on an August 3rd standoff at the Lincoln Hills School for Boys north of Wausau, Wisconsin. It was reported that four juvenile inmates climbed atop the facility and threw rocks and shingles at the guards. This uprising is part of a pattern at the Lincoln Hills School for Boys, including a pair of uprisings that left five prison workers hospitalized on October 22nd. The facility is the subject of multiple lawsuits and criminal investigation for its abuse of inmates. On October 18th, it was reported that the Trump administration has issued a request for information seeking a 200-600 to 600 bed facility to confine undocumented immigrants within 180 miles of Detroit. This facility would be one of four potential facilities the feds want to build, including potential jails around Chicago, St. Paul, and Salt Lake City. These inquiries are indicative of the Trump administration's desire to increase capacity for the racist targeting and detention of the undocumented. I'm A. Maria, here with David Langstaff, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement-building project based in Detroit, Michigan. Over the summer, co-producer Alejo Stark spoke with the writer, activist, and revolutionary Ashanti Alston, known by some as the Anarchist Black Panther, at the International Conference on Penal Abolition. 
Ashanti is a longtime organizer and former member of the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army. Today, he serves as treasurer on the steering committee of the National Jericho Movement, an organization committed to raising awareness about the struggles of political prisoners and ensuring that the knowledge and leadership brought by incarcerated organizers is recognized as essential to building powerful movements against racial capitalism and the carceral state. My name is Ashanti Austin. Um, a former member of the Black Panther Party and a soldier in the Black Liberation Army. And as a result of my politics, I was a political prisoner for a total of 14 years. At present, I'm on the steering committee of the uh, Jericho Movement, the National Jericho Movement, which fights for the freedom of political prisoners, especially those who've been in prison since the 60s and 70s. Though we represent a broad array of different political prisoners. Being invited here today and having an opportunity here at this conference, um, the ICOPA 17 conference, just allows me to make that pitch for people to like take on the issue of political prisoners, put it on the top of your agenda, not just anywhere, but on the top and why. You know, and why that issue is so important, not only as a political prisoner issue, but as an abolitionist issue. So I'm, I'm all for making that tie-in because I don't think you can do one without the other. So let's go back to your time in the Black Panther Party and later the BLA, the Black Liberation Army. To what extent was abolition something you were all grappling with then? Abolition, no. Prisons and the issues that we were grappling in the prisons, as far as it, you know, all the issues that concern abolition. But I, I would even say that back then that we had not even considered, you know, the role of prisons in that kind of critique. I think what we maybe envisioned then that we would be free we would make a revolution and those bankers and politicians and other people who was in power who oppressed us might replace us in these prisons. So it wasn't until, I, uh, for me personally, that um, I started reading uh, anarchism that I began to at least think about, you know, prisons in a different perspective, like as not useful, as not needed. And one of the things about critical resistance, we had this saying that once there were no prisons, that time shall come again. And for me, it was like, wow, to even think that there was a time there were no prisons is kind of heavy. So no, there wasn't always prisons, then how do we get here? And then not only how do we get here, how can we get beyond this? What other forms of interactions, relations that people can have where when we're faced with harm or we face with injustices that we have other ways, humane ways, I guess, of uh, correcting them. So critical resistance gave me an organizational way to like look into it more and for us to figure out ways that we could actually practice on some levels. First we called it restorative justice. And, but then that led us also to consider transformative justice. Then I understand that is beyond stopping the building of prisons or just creating a world without prisons, but then we want to consider uh, what's the role of those institutions that produce the prisons and the thinking that goes with it. And it made the critique of society even deeper, you know? So it's like, yeah, we really do got to change the society at the bottom of its roots. Can you share with us a little bit more about this transformation you went through as you were locked up inside? In particular, how you began thinking more critically about the state and the function of prisons in our society? This is in the, pretty much in the federal prison system. I'm being exposed to more radical 
thinkings, more radical readings. And uh, initially it was uh, critical theory. And it made me think that uh, some of the things that we were failing to do as movements were as much internal as the state's external measures to stop us. So what could we do to better our practice so that we wasn't becoming our own worst enemy? Um, so from the cr critical theory, then I started to get into the feminisms and from the feminisms into the anarchisms. So all of them was in different ways, giving me different perspectives and learnings on, on like our struggle and even on our history to be able to see that, um, you know, we got to keep going deeper. And all this I'm reading in prison. And so when I finally get releases to things I want to gravitate towards in my political practice when I'm out. And, I, and things I wasn't necessarily finding amongst my comrades, I started to look for the anarchist movements. And in, and in some of those, I was finding that kind of more radical practice. Um, but it, it, the help for me was like using that prison time as an educational tool. But it's not enough for me to just keep it in my head. How, did, how is it going to look in practice? You know, so from trying to practice it inside, trying to check my own sexism, my own authoritarianism, to coming out and being with others who are also trying to create these different, more radical relationships. So the prison thing was like, it, it may not have been the greatest place to be, but you utilize that time. Certainly the time for some folks that are locked up can be really politically radicalizing. As you said, you were politicized before you were captured by the state. For instance, you were a soldier in the struggle for black liberation. In this sense, both historically and even today, some make a distinction between political prisoners like yourself, Mumi Abu-Jamal, Leonard Peltier, and so many others, and so-called social prisoners, those that can potentially become radicalized inside. Can you tell us about what you make of this distinction today between political prisoners and so-called social prisoners? It's, it's, it's an issue that's been with us for decades, you know, the political prisoner versus the social prisoner. And even when one looks at it from a, a one perspective, like we're all political prisoners in some sense, there's a truth to it. But then there's also uh, has to be a recognition of those who consciously take on a revolutionary uh, character, especially outside, but also inside, and begin to live that kind of oppositional life and, and are captured for it or framed and put in prison for it. You're just going to leave them inside. You're going to leave your Mandelas inside, you know, and just let them suffer. Your job is to help get them out. And it's not like you're ignoring, you know, the average prisoner, but you're saying that these are your priority. They're going to come out and get back into the struggle. And then you have the George Jacksons. So we know that there's the potential of the social prisoners inside becoming revolutionaries themselves. And you want them also to be able to get out. But the whole thing is how can we keep feeding that movement with people who are dedicating them li their lives to this struggle? You know, so for me today, when I speak about, if I go to an abolitionist conference or I'm speaking, I gotta make this connection because I don't want people to treat the Mumias and the Leonard Peltiers, you know, and others like they're just, they're, they're part of the main population. They are technically, but these are the people who made a sacrifice for you. It's a tough, tough struggle, but there are those who just stay at it. 
you know, in the hopes that other people will kind of catch on and begin to help build a movement. We're not going to get our folks out unless we build movements from the ground. It cannot just be you're in this movement that's hot at the moment and you will not give any recognition to those who laid the groundwork for you. Can you tell us a little bit about the Jericho Movement and how folks can get involved? Um, if you go uh, the, the Jericho Movement com you'll see ways that you can support the political prisoners one is just to learn about the issue and you begin to see the faces of political prisoners in their stories but there's buttons that you can hit that's like paypal you know or um or to say like uh if there's a chapter here or a chapter here that they do a letter writing campaign or they got some other kind of issue that they they're trying to stroll around with political prisoners especially those who've been in there for like 40 years there's health issues, so we rely on people, donations, you know, or join, set up a chapter, or invite us to speak if you're at a university, you know, and so there's ways to help us, but that, but the whole thing is, is like to get it into communities, you know, the financial part becomes important because like sometimes because a pr political prisoner may be on the West Coast, but they're from the East Coast, we got to figure out how to get their families to see them, especially at critical times. So it's important that people like look into this, figure out how you can help us, how you can help other organizations, because there's anarchist organizations also that do political prisoner work. And it's like, we all doing this work, you know, we need support, you know, and the, and the biggest support is like from people. Thank you so much, Ashanti, for your lifelong struggle to make our world anew and for speaking with us today. Thank you for this opportunity to, to talk about political prisoners, and I hope that people come forward and take it on to help build this overall movement to change the world. We turn next to Jude Ortiz of the Tilted Scales Collective, a small collective of legal support organizers who have spent years supporting and fighting for political prisoners, prisoners of war, and politicized prisoners in the occupied lands of Turtle Island. A. Maria and I caught up with him during a book tour for A Tilted Guide to Being a Defendant, a new book written by dedicated legal support activists that draws on the experiences of dozens of people who have weathered the challenges of trials and incarceration. My name is Jude Ortiz. I'm with Tilted Scales Collective, spread out across Toro Island. So Tilted Scales Collective formed in 2012 at an Anarchist Black Cross Prisoner Support Conference. And we've been seeing all the various ways that the state was using criminal charges to target radicals on the left and seeing different things happening, like people getting arrested for allegedly taking one-off actions or being entrapped by FBI informants or undercover cops. And we're seeing exactly how devastating those criminal charges were on those individuals as well as on our movement. What cultural and strategic shifts are you trying to advance within radical movements? So our first project as a collective has been to write the Guide for Defendants. It offers a framework for thinking about criminal charges and ways that can help strengthen our struggles. And it's a goal-setting framework that focuses on three different areas, personal, political, and legal. The idea with that is that as a movement, as a whole, like we don't have a lot of skills, a lot of experience and knowledge about how to handle criminal charges in ways that will strengthen our movement. The fact is that we don't often know how to bring our politics into this battleground that the state chooses and they get to decide how things work in that battleground. So rather than allowing the state to just win all the time and to use those charges to, to isolate and punish individuals and to destroy communities and families and movements, we wanted to figure out how to shift those conditions 
and the power structures that exist so that we can push back and create more space for ourselves and come out stronger at the end, no matter what we're facing. So it seems like the major pitfalls we often encounter in defense campaigns against legal repression have to do, firstly, with thinking about legal defense in technocratic terms, as if strategy is something that should just be left to the experts, but also thinking about the ways the state works to divide and isolate those who resist. And I'm thinking in particular of grand juries, for instance. Can you talk about how the approach Tilted Scales is advocating sees legal defense as grounded in and emerging from strategic movement building and understands legal defense as a collective effort rather than something comprised simply of individual cases? So the goal setting framework is meant to be something that can help individuals figure out how to handle their cases, but it only makes sense within a context of how do our decisions with our criminal charges affect other people. So we have two guiding principles that we look at with that goal setting framework. One is that criminal charges are inherently a part of revolutionary struggle. And the state understands that, and they use those charges to disrupt and destroy our struggles. So we need to understand that as a way of including that into our struggles and ideally finding ways to come out stronger as revolutionaries, as revolutionary communities and movements. The other guiding principle is that however we handle our cases, we should figure out how to do that in ways that don't help the state lock other people up. Are there other ways you see this project overlapping with the abolitionist organizing? Most definitely. So our collective is coming from prison abolitionist politics. We're not a collective that is, is actually working to figure out ways of, of destroying the prison industrial complex. Instead, our focus is on helping people work through those situations. And if our defendant's guide can help people avoid prison, help sending people into those cages, that's amazing. And we want to do that. If it can help people figure out ways of challenging and disrupting and destroying that system and ultimately getting all those cages to be torn down, that's even better. Also, we're, we are anarchist legal workers. So we're approaching this project and this collective from the baseline idea that we need to have a world that is not structured around nation states and that we don't need governments in order to structure things and shape things and control and like run things that communities can do that for themselves. You're also part of the Defend J20 Resistance Solidarity Organizing. Yes, I'm also doing a lot of solidarity organizing with the J20 defendants. That's very closely related to Tilted Scales and also uh, a separate project. So defendj20resistance.org is a website where people can go for more information on that case. There are around 200 defendants who were initially arrested on January 20th in D.C. and charged with inciting a riot and other felonies. They were facing 10 years at the beginning. The prosecutors have added additional charges, including conspiracy to riot. So now the defendants are all facing about 75 years in prison. In doing defense campaigns, we can come up against lots of linguistic and cultural hurdles. For instance, trying to understand cases and talk about them within our communities in ways that are legally specific, but not tedious or alienating. How do you break that down? So in our defendant's guide, in our presentations, and when we're working with defendants who are trying to figure out which steps to take in their criminal cases, we, we do as much as we can to kind of demystify that language. And throughout the defendant's guide, we have a lot of end notes that kind of point to resources to help understand legal terms, like basic legal terms. And even with all that work, there's going to be very few times when you can understand a legal concept thoroughly and then also realistically expect it to like play out that way without putting pressure on the criminal courts to force it to do the things that it's supposedly designed to do. Could you give some examples of campaigns that have operationalized some of the principles, tactics, and strategies that you all are advocating for in this book? 
in contrast, say, to campaigns that have encountered some of the pitfalls we've discussed, such as instances in which legal defense loses its grounding in movement building or collective resistance? Yeah, so we're hoping that right now in the J20 case that our defendant's guide will have a lot of useful thoughts to help people figure out how to how to conduct a collective defense and collective approach like to their cases. And so I'm, I'm really hoping that however long this battle takes them, that at the end, like our, our guide as a resource would be like very useful in, in that struggle. The guide itself was written based on collective wisdom. So when we started as a collective, we wrote outlines for the defendant's guide as well as an outline for a lawyer's guide, which will be our next project as a collective. And the lawyer's guide will be companion to the defendant's guide. But we sent those outlines to about 100 people across the country and got feedback from 25 or 28 a good number of them were current and former prisoners. And so that collective wisdom, that collective experience was the the heart of our book in a lot of ways. Different people like in our collective also had an experience working on defense committees ranging from people who were entrapped by FBI or informants or like police informants to people who were arrested after allegedly taking a one-off action, whether it's like throwing a Molotov through a window or some other form of like property destruction. In that work and in our interviews and discussions with uh, defendants and prisoners, we noticed some trends and things that like have been done well or like not done well. And so we, we have a list in the book at one point that kind of looks at some things that that we saw as being like less advantageous uh, for defendants and more advantageous for the state uh, if people were to engage in that. So some of the things that we talk about with that list are about, like being very honest about like what the case is and is not about. We've also seen trends like where people, because like they're they're not sure like what information is uh, safe to share and what is not, where they'll ask for support and solidarity but not say like what the allegations are against them, not say what they pled guilty to because um, they have an unclear understanding of like what information is safe to share. And while it's good to err on the side of caution, it's also good and necessary to make sure that people who are being asked for solidarity understand like what's going on, especially when the state already knows that information. So if, if our communities don't know that information, the state does, that puts them at the advantage. How can people learn more and start accessing these resources? Our website is tiltedscalescollective.org. If people go to that website, they can get our zine, which is chapter two of our book. And you can read that or print that online for free. And you can also get a copy of our full book for free. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Yes, thank you for having us. It's been awesome. I've really been inspired by a lot of your recordings so far. We close today's episode with a conversation with Peyton, a Michigan-based J-20 defendant. My name is Peyton. I'm one of the close to 200 J-20 defendants. 230 people got swept up in a mass cuddle and arrested. Many of us now who are left, who haven't pled out or have been dropped, are facing about 70 years upwards in cumulative charges. Those charges include conspiracy to riot, which is a really, really large charge as well as enticing a riot, participation in a riot, property damage. And we were in a superseding indictment charged with assault on an officer, many of us, but that's since been dropped. All of these are federal charges. Can you talk about the kettling process and why people were amassed in D.C. that day? We had medics, legal observers, lawyers, people from the press, 
I myself had two cameras, both of which were taken, as well as an audio recorder and a backpack. All of these things are being used as evidence. People's phones have been taken and unlocked and used as evidence against them. So people's personal profiles for Facebook, email, what have you, are all being used as discovery indiscriminately by the state, no matter what people were doing there that day. And that's a kettle. Obviously, Donald Trump was a really galvanizing force for a lot of people. A lot of people have recently become politicized by that. Juxtaposed with our actions on Inauguration Day, the next day was the Million Women's March and the March of the Famous Pussy Hats. And so we see a lot of different types of people engaging in a diversity of tactics all around central points. The biggest one, I think, that day clearly was Donald Trump. But the underlying essence of what we were doing in that day in that particular demonstration was anti-fascist, anti-capitalist, anti-racist work. I don't think that a lot of people necessarily articulate themselves as anti-racist, anti-fascist, or anti-capitalist when they're doing their critiques of Donald Trump. But I think that that is a great stepping stone for people to start to explore those dimensions of solidarity work. Can you tell us about some collective legal defense tactics and fall trial updates? No one really expected anything like we experienced that day. And so the infrastructure for a mass defense of this scale was not there. But I think retrospectively, I've seen a lot of people from a lot of different places because, as you can imagine, people came from all across the country to demonstrate against what was going on that day. We have a number of people from Michigan, people from Pennsylvania, New York, etc. And all of these people have come together, for the most part, to put on benefit shows, do call-ins, and create public media press reports to get awareness out and raise funds. Right now, the major updates are the first trial, primarily composed of people who did speedy motions. They motioned for a speedy trial so that they could insert themselves before the people who were most suspect. And I do air quotations around that. These are the people who were identified organizers or perhaps had certain items on their persons at the time that the state deemed more militant than others. We were grouped into originally four groups, group one being the most, once again, quote-unquote, suspect, group four being the least. So a lot of group four people, these are the medics and the journalists and the more able of us to put that social and legal cushion into that first group. If we're talking about public image before the eyes of a jury could potentially lead to a little bit more conflict. And that's precisely why the least suspect people put themselves in that position so that they could try to protect the people who are being more scrutinized by the state. As abolitionists and organizers, we grapple with knowing that all imprisoned people under racial capitalism are behind bars for political reasons, but note a particular obligation to organize in support of those criminalized for their efforts to make another world. Has becoming a J-20 defendant shifted the ways that you experience those tensions? And what kind of solidarity are J-20 defendants asking for right now? It certainly has forced me into a position where I need to think from a more historic lens. I always knew that there was a racial implicity in the carceral system in this country coming out of slavery. I myself am half black, and so that's always been something that I've roped with, is the intersection between white and black in this country and how people have been treated historically. But being a defendant at this point has definitely increased my awareness. A number of us have already been affected by the state. Uh, a lot of people have records. Some people are new. Right now, we're still looking for a lot of help for our finances and fundraising, housing, food, and logistics for people going to D.C. for their trial, as well as taking court notes and court support or emotional support after people come out of trial or before, as well as social media awareness campaigns. If you yourself, as a listener, would like to offer support, there is a website, defendj20resistance.org, where you can learn how to donate, read our Statement of Solidarity, drop the charges campaign, or sift through the assorted media resources. 
Thank you, Peyton, for joining us on the show. Thank you. It's been a really uplifting and encouraging situation, equally as much as I think it is a dark one. As the carceral state escalates repression of social movements, it becomes even more important for abolitionists and all of us struggling for collective liberation to think carefully about what it would mean to build our capacity for strategic movement defense and to recommit ourselves to standing in solidarity with those who would put themselves at risk in the struggle for another world. Yet abolitionists also recognize that all prisoners are political, insofar as prisons have become indispensable to contemporary racial capitalism's containment and repression of insurgent social life which is at once devalued and regarded as an existential threat. Moreover, prisons are themselves sites of radical collective action and political repression as illustrated by luminaries such as George Jackson, whose revolutionary convictions developed through his very experience of incarceration. To close with Jackson's words, settle your quarrels, come together, understand the reality of our situation, understand that fascism is already here, that people are dying who could be saved, that generations more will die or live poor, butchered half-lives if you fail to act. Do what must be done, Discover your humanity and your love in revolution. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out at our website, www.rustbeltradio.org. This show is co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Crew. Andres, A. Maria, David Langstaff, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.